0: This show is brought to you by the support of our listeners. To find out how you can help the show financially and otherwise, please visit bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Rachel Maddow Show, Ring of Fire, The Onion Radio News, NPR, The Tom Hartman Program, Counterspin, La Show, and The Colbert Report with a special bonus clip today for our iPhone app users from Green.tv.
1: See the coal man is a jolly, happy soul. He's abundant here in America. And he helps our economy roll. Frosty, the coal man's getting every day. He's affordable
2: and adorable, Earth workers keep their pay. There must have been some Remember those fish lumps? Fish. <laughs> the clean coal carolers? Singing lumps of coal designed to make you like coal more. Uh, brought to you by the American Coalition for Clean Coal Electricity. Uh, they may have been the first attempt to use popular children's entertainment to put a benign face on the so-called clean coal industry, but they apparently were not the last. A startup coal gasification company, based in my beloved Western Massachusetts, has named itself after a Dr. Seuss character. And they picked pretty much the least clean coal friendly character in the entire Dr. Seuss pantheon. They picked the Lorax. You know, I am the Lorax, I speak for the trees. He's the little dude who uh, warns the once that it would be a bad thing to pillage the environment for short-term profit. That character's name was the inspiration for a coal company, Lorax AG, a company that plans to buy coal and use what they call green coal technology, TM, uh, to transform it into ammonia, urea, sulfuric acid, and potentially hydrogen and synthetic natural gas. They want to sell some of those products to make fertilizer. That is the want to seem eco sensitive company that named themselves after the Lorax. But you know, After a tip from our friends at Wonk Room, lawyers from Dr. Seuss started to fume. They sent off a cease and desist letter to Lorax AG saying, stop what you do. When we called them for comment on having been burned, our producers' repeated attempts were all spurned. What to do, how to get a response, said the show. Then a clever producer said, I think I know. She looked at their website and got a surprise. It was suddenly down, so we had to surmise that the cease and desist letter had an effect. We're trying to confirm it, but we don't expect that Lorax AG will have too much to say, but if we hear more, we'll tell you, okay? And in case um, Dr. Seuss isn't on your bookshelf, here's the case for nature made by the great man himself. Plant a new Truffula, treat it with care, give it clean water, and feed it fresh air. Grow a forest, protect it from the axes that hack, then the Lorax and all his friends may come back. Remember that part where um, he lifts himself up by his pants and he flies through the hole in the smog? That's That's so cool.
3: The changing tide on Capitol Hill, and whether or whether or not whether or not we're going to see the U.S. restore its prominent leadership role in climate change, is Capitol Hill's principal advocate for responsible energy and for energy independence. Congressman Ed Markey, of Massachusetts, Congressman Markey, welcome to the show.
4: Thank you. Thanks for having me back. So, what is the
3: what's the status now? Are, are we likely to see a Waxman-Markey bill actually pass into law?
4: I think that the chances are increasing. I think that the decision made by the Environmental Protection Agency to rule that CO2 is a danger to the public health in our country, I think that the movement that's happening in China and India, uh, as they begin to put their new positions on the table, as uh, the world gathers in Copenhagen, And the movement that's starting in the Senate where uh, John Kerry and Lindsey Graham and Joe Lieberman are all working together to find a a way of consolidating 60 votes that can pass is all pointing towards an increase in momentum uh, that I think is a very positive development.
3: Last week, Senator Byrd wrote a a, a kind of an earth-shaking editorial. I was in West Virginia this week, uh, and it's still reverberating around the state. Senator Byrd, who's been one of the primary advocates of coal and even mountaintop removal, um, wrote an editorial in the local newspapers that that must have pleased you very much.
4: Well, you know, the op-ed written by Senator Byrd, Is probably in a lot of ways an even bigger development than the decision made by the EPA because what it is saying is that historic opponents of doing nothing are now trying to find a way uh, of working towards uh, putting together something that everyone can live with as we move forward to a new future in our relationship with all of these energy technologies. And so yes, Senator Byrd's movement is absolutely historic and perhaps the big thing that has happened so far this year.
3: You know, like any bill of this size and this complexity, trying to regulate new regulations, trying to pass new regulations for a very, very strong, powerful industry, um, there are compromises that had to be made there are more compromises that will be made, and many of those, some of those compromises have displeased people within the environmental community. Um, several billion dollars to coal to carbon sequestration from coal plants. Tell us why environmentalists need to support this legislation.
4: It's very simple. Um, we did pass in 1970 the Clean Air Act. It was historic, but it did not finish the job. We also needed the Clean Air Act of 1978, and the Clean Air Act of 1990. And when the three of them had ultimately been passed, the problem of SO2, problem of smog, a lot of those problems were finally dealt with. And so I think that environmentalists should view this issue the same way. Once we put in place the fundamental structure to deal with this issue. If we're right, and we all know we are, then it's going to unleash a renewables revolution, an efficiency revolution, a technology revolution uh, that will telescope the time frame that it takes to solve the problem. And when we come back in five more years, we'll have even more supporters for the next version uh, of this uh, legislation. Uh, to move us even closer to ensuring that by 2050, children have to go to the history books to find out that we ever were debating an issue called global warming. So we know the original constitution of our country wasn't perfect, the original Civil Rights Act back in the mid-60s was not perfect, the original Voting Rights Act was not perfect, but it created the framework that brought us to today, and that's what we're going to do with this legislation. Uh, by having President Obama sign it.
5: I want to have friends that I can trust That love me for the man I've become Not the man that I was And I want to have friends that let me be
6: The oil spill results in improved wildlife viscosity. It's the Onion Radio News. I'm Doyle Redland. A castrol oil supertanker ran aground today near Nome, Alaska, spilling more than 51 million gallons of oil and greatly improving the viscosity of marine wildlife. The spill coated 500,000 birds, fish, and seals in quality high-grade lubricant that will provide valuable protection and keep important animal parts running smooth. Castor oil. Officials are pleased with the well lubed wildlife and plan to coat all other earth mammals in oil.
3: The centerpiece of legislation is to do something that we've been urging Congress to do for decades, which is to finally put a price on carbon and create a market so that that incentivizes producers of carbon to actually rationalize their behavior and to and to and to behave with greater efficiency and rewards them for doing so.
4: There's a lot of really terrific things in the Waxman Markey Bill. Uh, 15% of all of our electricity coming from renewables by 2020. A 50% improvement in the energy efficiency in all new buildings constructed by 2016. A tough new appliance efficiency standards to reduce the amount of electricity they have to consume. But at the heart of the whole bill, as you point out, is this requirement that there has to be a 2% reduction in the amount of CO2 sent into the atmosphere every year for 40 years, and by having that as part of the bill, we're saying that every single company in America start to plan for emitting lower amounts of CO2 every single year, and as a result, that will open up to thousands of companies, entrepreneurs, technologists, venture capitalists, uh, the opportunity to bring their products to market that will help to solve that problem, create a couple of million new jobs in America, back out uh, the millions of barrels of oil from the Middle East, even as we're saving the planet in the bargain.
3: Give us, uh, before you go, an assessment of President Obama's environmental record thus far and a prediction about what's going to happen at Copenhagen.
4: Well, think of it like this. We have a Bush administration where The head of the Environmental Protection Agency did not appear for six consecutive years uh, before the committee that I serve on, the Energy and Environment Committee, uh, the most successful witness protection program in the history of our country. Uh, Now, we have Lisa Jackson uh, at EPA, uh, Stephen Chu, a Nobel Prize winner at the Department of Energy, Carol Browner. Secretary Salazar, an all-star cast of people in all of these agencies. We have a president who is going to go to Copenhagen next week and give a speech about how committed he is to solving the global problem that has been created by the industrialized world, mostly by Europe and uh, the United States, uh, and putting together a plan that will begin to reduce uh, the threat to the planet. So I can't give him higher grades, it's taking a lot of political courage and capital to uh, step up to do this, and he's created the conditions where M- Waxman Markey can pass the House, and now, uh, in the Senate, we have a real chance of being uh, successful uh, as uh, well. Uh, I, I, had, I had breakfast this morning with uh, Secretary Hillary Clinton, along with um, Speaker Pelosi, uh, Todd Stern, our chief negotiator who's leaving for China, for leaving uh, for Copenhagen today, John Kerry, Lindsey Graham, Joe Lieberman, and we talked about uh, the strategy for a successful outcome, not only in Copenhagen, but in the United States Senate, and ultimately in putting a a bill on the president's desk. So all of this is part of a new environment that we're living in that uh, really will, if we're successful, make him the most important environmental president in our country's history.
3: A final question. I did a blog last week on the new commitment China to green technologies. China has committed $7 trillion over the next five years to green technologies and is taking the lead on these technologies. They're going to spend more money on green technologies than they're spending on their military. This is something that is encouraging to people around the world, but it's also something that is having damaging implications to the budding green technology industry in this country, is that something, is that competition something that worries you at all?
4: Well, you know, when, you're, um, when your uncle was president and I was a sophomore in high school, one of the most memorable moments was Adlai Stevenson at the United Nations for President Kennedy holding up a photograph of Soviet missiles that were being constructed in Cuba and aimed at the United States. I was over in China back over the Memorial Day break for eight days meeting with President Hu and Premier Wen with Speaker Pelosi. Well, we went out to an electric car factory, which they have, but then we rode by and we saw this huge wind uh, turbine and blade factory. So we stopped and we got out. There they were, hundreds of them, in the in the uh, store area, storage area outside, and I took a picture of it because it reminded me, like those Soviet missiles aimed at the United States, of uh, that these were the latter day equivalent aimed at our American economy, that the Chinese have targeted this sector to be the global uh, leader, and so as you're raising this question, it really is a. It really is whether or not we want MADE by OPEC to be replaced by MADE in China, and that uh, MADE in the United States never did become part of the equation. Uh, A competition between the United States and China on clean energy technologies is a much better thing for our planet than a competition between the U.S. and USSR over who can build the most ICBMs, but we're now, I think in a situation where we should not be afraid of them, but we should respect them. They have a plan. And two million new jobs might be created in China that should have been created in the United States, unless we can pass Waxman-Markey, unless we can put it on the books, unless we can begin our country to move with the same amount of energy and vigor uh, that President Kennedy had our country moving and challenging the Soviet Union technologically so that they did not control the skies.
7: everybody likes a good discount. And if you were brave enough to go to the mall the past week or so, you probably saw a lot of people enjoying the post-Christmas sales, stuffing their shopping bags full, trying to get as much for their dollars as possible. But if the stuff in question had been free, our favorite behavioral economist Dan Ariely says there may have been a different story. Dan, it's good to have you back. It's a pleasure always. So uh, in my book, cheaper prices are good. Yes. Is that what you're learning here?
8: In general, yes, but there's some interesting exception, and the most interesting one is the price of free. Imagine that one of your coworkers comes to the office with home-baked cookies, and she's offering you the cookies for a very cheap price, let's say $0.05 cents per cookie. Okay. And she has 100 cookies on the tray and there are 20 people in the office. How many cookies will you take? I'd probably take like five. I'd give
7: her a quarter and take five
8: cookies. Okay, but what would happen if it was free? Uh,
7: well, now, see, I'm torn here, because I would either take a lot and, and be a real piggy, or I would take maybe one or two, because I wouldn't want to be a glutton.
8: That's right. So let's assume that you will not uh, feel like All being right, a okay. pig. In fact, right. you can actually imagine how if she offered you the cookies for five cents a piece, you would feel perfectly fine to take the whole batch. But if she charged you nothing you would not feel that you could take as much as you really want. Is this about the value we put on it, or is it about us internally? It's about the fact that when something is free, all of a sudden different norms get applied to the situation, and you start thinking about other people. So, you know, you have lots of other co-workers in the office, and if you took all the cookies to yourself, uh, nobody else would have any cookie. What's interesting is that when the price is a positive price, like five cents, You don't actually think about the welfare of other people.
7: You bet, because I've paid my nickel, and and by gosh, I'm going to take as many cookies as I want, right? But, you know, this is a good deal,
8: and you have lots of other people in the office that you like and care about. Why don't you think about their welfare? Don't you want them to be happy as well?
7: Yeah, I suppose. But, you know, if the cookies are good.
8: (laughs) But the cookies are also good when they're free. So what is interesting is that when something is free, you all of a sudden think about the welfare of others, but when it costs something, it's just you and your cost-benefit analysis.
7: Uh, All right, so so take it away from my cookies and and me looking out for the welfare of the office and, and apply it to real life then.
8: Well, I mean, cookies are real life, but uh, <laughs> this actually, this, this thought, this general idea, I think also has an application for the carbon trade idea.
7: Carbon trade as in global warming, we're going from cookies to global yeah, warming?
8: Yeah, I mean, obviously, right? What, what okay, other connections right, would you make? Sure. So think about it. Pollution, carbon trade or recycling or whatever it is, is in the public goods domain. We think about our kids, the next generation, kind of the welfare of the world. But if it Mm starts costing us money, now we start to apply different norms and different rules. Now I don't think about the welfare of others. It's just about what is it worth for me to pollute and not to pollute. I'm actually worried that when we move from a system that we care about our pollution and CO2 emissions and so on because of the welfare generally of the world, we're going to apply a certain norm. If they charge us a lot of money, then, of course, we would be very careful and we might uh, try to reduce dramatically pollution. But if they don't charge us that much, it could actually end up backfiring.
7: Right. So you're worried that, that the politicians won't be able to agree on a higher price of carbon. So it'll be something uh, so small as to be
8: meaningless and, and maybe even harmful. That's right. If we started charging a lot of money for it, we will really dramatically change the economy. And I don't think we understand how this will work. And at the low level, I think that rather than getting us to care more, it will actually end up getting us to care less.
7: Only on Marketplace, chocolate chip cookies to global warming. Dan Ariely (laughs) teaches behavioral economics at Duke University. His book is called Predictably Irrational. Dan, thanks a lot.
8: My
1: pleasure.
9: In for a moment, Jimmy Carter. We had the we had this uh, in the early seventies. Louise and I were living in Detroit in seventy-three, I think it was seventy-two or seventy-three, and I, you know, I remember this well. Louise was was uh, pregnant with our first child. We had just been married for a year. We uh, we were I, w- I was working for RCA actually at the time uh, to get some health insurance. I was working as an engineer for RCA, and. And uh, the Arabs, because we had supported Israel in in this conflict, the Arabs cut off our oil supply. And here we were living in Detroit, which was actually at that time a pretty vibrant town. The auto industry was still going really well. And the, you know, 72, 73, the trade policies that came along with Reagan and then, and then particularly Bill Clinton had not kicked in yet. And so unemployment wasn't all that high. It, was, it wasn't a bad place to live, actually. And we were actually living out in one of the suburbs. We were living in Westland, and, uh, and, which is near Livonia. And, and in any case, I remember when they shut off the oil. It, this is during the Nixon administration. They shut off the oil. The Arabs shut off the oil, and Nixon went to odd, even rationing. You could only buy gas on, on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday if your car license plate ended in an odd number, and Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, and Sunday if it was even or something like and, and And the lines to buy gas were, in some cases, a mile long. In Detroit, there were there were a couple of people who shot other people about cut because they cut in line. I remember the stores in that, uh, around us, the supermarkets, going empty. I mean, literally going in two, three days after, the, because the, uh, as I recall, the Teamsters went on strike, or some of the truckers, anyhow, went on strike because of the, 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 or maybe they just didn't have the gas. Again, it's been a lot of years, and I don't remember all the details, and I haven't read up on this in the intervening years. I just lived it. But I remember walking into a supermarket and seeing that at least three-quarters of the shelves were completely empty because people were hoarding. People were panic buying. You know, they were were, were getting everything they could. We thought that the oil was gone. So Nixon leaves, Ford leaves, Jimmy Carter comes in and Jimmy Carter says, you know, that was a real mess. We're not going to let that happen again. We're going to declare independence from those Arabs who are able to cut off our oil supply. And I want you to just let this sink in for a moment. This quote, this is absolutely factually accurate. Statistics from the U.S. Department of Energy as cited by Amory Lovins of the Rocky Mountain Institute at a speech he gave at one of the TED conferences in 1977 through 85. That's from the middle of the Carter administration until the middle of the Reagan administration as Reagan really started picking up speed on doing away with Carter's energy efficiency programs. This was the period of time when you'll find houses all over America that are built that are passive solar and highly energy efficient and whatnot. You know, the the big lie that is told... By big oil, big coal, and all the you know, all the big carbon industries is you know if we cut back on our oil imports, if we cut back on oil, the economy will go in the tank. That's the fear. From nineteen seventy seven to nineteen eighty-five, the economy grew twenty-seven percent. Oil use fell by seventeen percent. Oil imports fell by 50 percent and oil imports from the Persian Gulf fell by 87 percent and would have been gone, that's zero, if we had kept that up for one more year, the year 1985. But Ronald Reagan didn't want to keep that up. Ronald Reagan didn't want our kids to go to college for free. Ronald Reagan didn't want people to get food stamps or be on welfare. Ronald Reagan didn't want social security. He, want- he doubled the social security tax. He wanted to make it very hard on average working people. Ronald Reagan didn't want people unionized. Ronald Re- the Reagan revolution truly transformed America. And one of, one, one of the biggest pieces of that transformation was that it made us dependent upon Middle East oil. So much so that we're importing now more than half of our oil, and we're importing a good chunk of it from the Middle East, and that part that we're not importing from the Middle East because oil is so fungible might as well be. Because if we import it from Mexico or Venezuela, if they were to cut us off, we'd just you know, get more from Saudi Arabia or vice versa. We could We could have... I mean, Jimmy Carter had this plan that we would have 20% of the nation's electricity from solar energy by the year 2000. That was 10 years ago, and we would have hit it. In fact, we would have hit it long before 2000 because he was basing all of those projections on technology that existed in 1977, and it started exploding, that technology, improving, getting more and more efficient. And so what happened? We became more dependent upon oil because of the Reagan policies. And so we started spending more and more time in the Middle East where all the oil was under the George Herbert Walker Bush policies. And we increased our dependence throughout the Clinton administration. We did nothing during the Clinton administration. And, which, which, and, and there was money to be made by that time. I mean, there were big bucks to be made in oil. And so when two oil executives... George W. Bush and Dick Cheney became president and vice president. first thing they did the first meeting that they had first cabinet meeting according to uh, according to their, their their secretary of the what was it the uh, Secretary of Commerce is the at the time as I recall. So the first cabinet meeting the discussion was how do we invade Iraq? That was in January in March Dick Cheney's having a secret meeting in the White House where he's carving up the oil fields of Iraq and deciding which corporations he's going to sell the oil to.
2: to
0: You can now support this podcast as easily as by shopping online. The next time you need to make a purchase of just about anything, simply visit bestofleft.com and use our Amazon.com search box to find what you're looking for. The search box is located right on the side of the website. You can't miss it. When you make your purchase, we get a little commission. It's just another effortless, completely free way for you to help keep the show going strong. Thanks for your support.
2: You'd remember drinking hot chowder. You'd still enjoy it with your foot on the
5: side door. The New York Times has been going out of its way lately to give a fair shake to those who believe that global warming is a hoax engineered by a global conspiracy of climate scientists. On February 9th, the paper ran a front-page story headlined, UN Climate Panel and Chief Face Credibility Siege, which reported that the UN's Intergovernment Panel on Climate Change and its head, Rajendra Pachari, are, quote, under intense scrutiny facing accusations of scientific sloppiness and potential financial conflicts of interest from climate skeptics, right-leaning politicians, and even some mainstream scientists, close quote. A few paragraphs down, we're told that the most common criticisms have proved to be half-truths, and that the, quote, general consensus among mainstream scientists is that the errors are in any case minor and do not undermine the report's conclusions, close quote. And so these charges are on the front page of the New York Times because why, again, it's worth noting that the only mainstream scientist quoted in the piece as being critical of the IPCC is Roger Pilkey, a political scientist who says he's not skeptical that climate change is happening, but is regularly cited by leading global warming deniers like Senator James Inhofe because of his skepticism about efforts to do anything about global warming. Speaking of Inhofe, the Oklahoma Republican was prominently featured, along with Matt Drudge and Rush Limbaugh, in another New York Times front pager on global warming, headlined, Believe it or not, Climate Fight is Heating Up in Deep Freeze. This February 11th piece was balanced in fine New York Times style between, on the one hand, those who argued that heavy snowfalls on the east coast of the United States are evidence that global warming is not happening, and on the other hand, by those who think that's nonsense.
10: You stood in my doorway You nothing to say Besides some comment on the weather
2: Well, in case you fail to notice In case you fail to see
6: report says Arctic climate change is happening faster than anyone anticipated and may be soon, soon be forcing more rapid warming on the rest of the planet. It's a tipping point, says Craig Stewart of the World Wildlife Fund, releasing the report here in London. Hey, Craig. The report is an attempt to update the work of scientists involved in 2007's intergovernmental panel on climate change as world leaders gather in Copenhagen in, in December to discuss how to deal with the issue. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. The conclusion of many of those same researchers is that changes are occurring much more quickly, especially in the Arctic, than was believed even two years ago. We thought by 2050, multi-year sea ice would be cut in half, says Stewart. It happened in 2007. The biggest worry is so-called methane hydrates, a strange slushy form of methane frozen in ice molecules that exists in vast volumes in permafrost. We discussed this a couple weeks ago, I think. And continental shelves around the circumpolar globe. Thank you. Cold and high pressure have so far kept that methane out of the atmosphere, but underground methane has recently been observed bubbling up in Arctic Russia. Those Russians, those damn Russians, they can't even keep their methane under control. There's so much methane under the permafrost and under ocean floor sediments that the carbon in that methane is the equivalent of all the coal, oil, and gas combined worldwide. If that methane gets released, that will become the single greatest driver of of climate change anywhere in the world. Sea levels are also being increasingly affected by Arctic climate change, as we've discussed on this broadcast in this award-winning segment. And from mid-July to early August 2006, a heat wave swept through the southwestern United States. Temperature records were broken at many locations and unusually high humidity levels for this typically arid region led to the deaths of more than 600 people, 25,000 cattle, and 70,000 poultry in California alone. I guess it proves it's better to be cattle than poultry. An analysis of this extreme episode carried out by researchers at Scripps Oceanography in San Diego put this heat wave in the context of six decades of observed heat waves. Their results suggest that such regional extremes are becoming more and more likely as climate change trends continue. The team led by climate scientist Alexander Goshunov, examined meteorological conditions that lead to this and other recorded heat waves. They found that heat waves in the region often fall into one of two types, the typical daytime events, dry daytime heat and rejuvenating nighttime cooling, or the less typical nighttime heat waves, high humidity and hot muggy days and nights. Since the early 90s, nighttime heat wave events in California, historically less common, have become more prevalent and increasing in both in in frequency and intensity. The pinnacle occurring in 17-day period during July of 2006. Ugh. Water vapor is the main greenhouse gas during the night in humid environments. Air doesn't cool nearly as much as it does in dry conditions. Elevated humidity also causes heat waves to last longer. <laughs> Tell it to the New Orleansians. Hotter nights precondition hotter days and the cycle feeds on itself until the winds change. The... Uh, study appeared in the online edition of the American Meteorological Society's Journal of Climate. I didn't get my copy. The kid threw it in the the, uh, water. Tropical lizards detect the effects of global warming in a climate where the smallest change makes a big difference. According to herpetologist Lori Witt, And George Lynn Cross at the University of Oklahoma's Sam Noble Museum of Natural History. Climate change caused by global warming threatens the very existence of these and other tropical species. According to Witt, has studied the ecology of lizards and rainforests around the world and for the past 20 years as part of a biodiversity project in the Amazon. He's investigated the effects of global warming on tropical lizards. We depend on these tropical lizards and other species and plant uh, of animals and plants for food, materials, and pharmaceuticals, but we're losing these species as a result. Tropical species are affected more by the very narrow temperature range of their typically warm climate than our ectotherms, thank you, living where the temperatures fluctuate in greater degrees. Even the smallest change in the tropics makes a difference to the tropical species most susceptible. That's right. You got small change. Goes farther in the tropics. Climatic shifts are part of our natural history, but years of research indicate global warming has increased the rate at which climate change is taking place," says Vitt. And this is the one that maybe might want to might want to provoke some thought somewhere along the way. Just before we uh, make a move, a report from the highly. It respected institute of mechanical engineers in the united kingdom it says that without geoengineering that is to say humans mucking about trying to fix this thing you know in technical ways it will be impossible to combat climate change it proposes three geoengineering ideas including a forest of artificial trees to help soak up the world's carbon emissions the report has a 100 year roadmap to decarbonize the co- global economy. Well, the roadmap idea worked so well in the Middle East. Why not? The report defines two types of geoengineering. The first category aims to cool the planet by reflecting some of the sunlight away, the second involves the removal and storage of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. The team studied hundreds of different options but put forward just three as being practical and feasible using current technology. Artificial trees are already in the prototype stage don't tell the artificial squirrels and are advanced in their design in terms of their automation and in the components that would be used according to the report they could within a relatively short duration be moved forward into mass production and deployment the trees would work on the principle of capturing carbon dioxide from the air through a filter it would then be removed from the filter and stored the report calls for the technology to be developed in conjunction with carbon storage infrastructure Hey, put it right where the plutonium is. That way we'll keep track of it. Because we're so smart, another proposed methods of capturing carbon is to install algae-based photobioreactors on buildings. These would be transparent containers containing algae that would remove CO2 from the air during photosynthesis. And, of course, the third option, the reduction of incoming solar radiation by reflecting sunlight back into space. Buildings would have reflective roofs. Or we'd put a big sunshade above the atmosphere. Launching the report, though, the authors say geoengineering should not be viewed as the silver bullet that could combat climate change in isolation, but rather as a plutonium bullet. No, they don't say that. All these options, they say, will require more research. So please send them money, won't you?
0: everyone i know you know by now that the members are absolutely the lifeblood of this show in return for their support i've been able to increase the schedule to 10 episodes per month and this means that the members now are only paying 50 cents per episode to keep the show going now if everyone within the sound of my voice sent in just 25 cents a month That would be enough, but in reality, we all know that's not going to happen. So just know that when you sign up for a membership at just 5 bucks a month, you're actually supporting the show for yourself and 20 other people who maybe can't afford to pay. So in return, you actually have my gratitude and the gratitude of all of those who benefit from the service this show provides. For details on membership, please visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Thanks so much for your support.
11: One of the biggest criticisms the right wing consistently delivers when talking about climate change is that it's going to cost us too much money to fix the problem. Hell with our children, to hell with our grandchildren, just worry about cost. But according to some of the brightest minds in the world, reducing our carbon footprints and fighting climate change is not only going to help the environment, but it would drastically improve our economy by creating new jobs. These are just a few of the things that the Clear Air Act is attempting to accomplish. Joining me now is Senator Maria Cantwell, who recently introduced the Clear Act. Maria, cap and trade is—it's a great tool. I mean, there's no question it's a great tool. But the problem is, is as you know, as you've pointed out with your uh, with your clear legislation, that you have to have tougher efficiency. You have to have uh, uh, higher fuel taxes. You have to have standards that are sustainable things like green research programs and uh, and that all has to come together to put together a comprehensive program that works. i got to tell you, NRDC's Dale Burke was very vocal on the idea that cap-and-trade is just not enough. So you've come up with the Carbon Limits and Energy for America Renewal. Tell us about it.
12: Well, it's really simple in the concept of we wanted to take the top 2,000 people who are putting fossil fuel into our economy and get them to start gradually reducing that and have an auction to do so but give a rebate to consumers who are already paying high energy costs.
11: Have you concluded that cap and trade just isn't enough? In other words, you know, you had all of the progressives that, you know, were trying to embrace cap and trade, and they started taking a look at it and saying that it's really not sustainable. Are you of that opinion?
12: Well, I think the issue is I'm not for the big trading platforms that we've had. We've had such volatility in these other markets, some in energy, but in housing and everything else, created by futures. And if you're going to have a trading platform that is going to just drive up the cost of carbon. Artificially carbon credits, then we don't need that. So I don't want to get in the same mess that, you know, credit default swaps and you know all of these all of these tools that aren't going to give us the predictability that we need in moving forward and getting off of carbon.
11: In other words, government has to take more active role than just setting carbon prices. Uh, you know, energy prices, higher energy prices, surely going to motivate people to change their behavior, but it's just not enough. I mean, I think that's the way that this.
12: Well, point. I think we, you know, Americans right now would do the things if they had choices. They don't like when fuel prices spike, and they certainly don't like the pollution that comes from it. But they got to have alternatives, and they got to be cost-affordable. And so this is about, you know, our bill has been endorsed by AARP. And they're a group of people that you wouldn't normally think of on an energy policy or an environmental policy, but they know that in this mix, seniors are paying too high of energy costs, and that if we want to get off carbon, you got to protect seniors as we do it.
11: Okay, so the key, the the, the magic number is what? What three hundred and fifty parts per million is that? Uh, my, is is that about right for carbon in the in the atmosphere? Yes. Okay, so that's where your goal. That's your goal to get there. And the way you want to do it is by gradual, uh, gradual slices. For example, you have twenty percent lower global warming pollution by uh, say twenty twenty, and that's relative to two thousand five numbers. Is that right?
12: Right. Right. You want to do it in a you want to do it in a gradual way, but start the process. Last week the Saudi Arabian government said we were at peak oil or we were going to be at it pretty soon. Right. And that they they wanted to diversify their economy. And if the Saudi Arabian government is saying they want to diversify their economy off of fossil fuel, by gosh, we ought to be able to diversify our economy yeah. and move ahead knowing that Higher fuel prices in the future are just going to be a roller coaster for the U.S. economy. It's not. It's not as if we have a lot more fossil fuel supply. We don't. So this is about diversifying off of that and on to other sources that really will help grow jobs in the U.S.
11: Peak oil has been an issue. As a matter of fact, we've started seeing the Middle East, they're doing things like building their own cities that are completely fossil fuel free. I mean, as you point out, that's a pretty good indicator when the people who have more oil than any place in the world say two things. Number one, we're running out of oil. Number two, we have to get ahead of the program and come up with uh, alternative programs. So, So is isn't this also part of an industry? I mean, isn't this something that we ought to look at? Uh, you know, you had Van Jones out of California that's been talking about the idea of green jobs forever. And and is, isn't it time that? Uh, I've looked at your your legislation. I don't see a part in there. Maybe I'm just missing it that really emphasizes the need to expand kind of that green economy.
12: Well, we basically of the auction that is created. So, basically, oil companies, people producing fossil fuel would have to buy a permit to continue to do so. That revenue, we think, is what would help us stimulate R&D investment and uh, transition dollars to help states who are impacted because maybe they are heavy in fossil fuel economies. But the key thing is that by moving ahead and saying you are going to set this uh, reduction on carbon and it's going to be a gradual reduction. you are going to trigger the private sector to make investments in these new technologies what, what else? It's very It's very important that we uh, make this because this is a six trillion dollar industry opportunity new you know new energy, and that's in energy efficiency that's in these various new sources of energy. And if we in the United States fall behind, the jobs will go to other countries, to Asia, to Scandinavia. Right. And this is something that it's already we, happening,
11: isn't it? I mean, isn't aren't we already losing that
1: edge?
12: Well, you could look at specific sectors and say that's true. You could say that you know the Danes are better at wind, and you could say that uh, you know that Asians have produced you know fuel-efficient cars. That you know China right now is is got the edge on the battery uh production, even though the battery technology was really u s technology, so yeah, we got to get going
11: and so rather than subsidizing some of these industries, you're saying that, that we ought to look at it by generating revenue, things like carbon permits that come from uh importers of coal or natural gas uh uh power plant that burns coal or yeah, we
12: don't we don't we don't have a true price we don't have a true price signal on. Carbon in the future, and as you can see, we can go anywhere from you know seventy dollars to you know one hundred fifty dollars a barrel as we were some you know two summers ago, and that causes great havoc on the economy. But if we say, listen, we know that in the future fossil fuels are going to be in short supply, just because of where oil is, and we know that they're not really that good for you know our environment. So let's make conscious effort to to reduce that. Everybody starts planning to go in a different direction.
1: How many times does nuclear power get to have a comeback? At least one more. The Washington Post, Anthony Faola reported November 24th under the headline, Nuclear Power Regains Support. The greening of nuclear power story is a perennial favorite for the corporate press, and this one has all the hallmarks, including the subhead's tool against climate change, and even green groups see it as part of the answer, because no example of the genre would be complete without the environmentalist-turned-nuclear lobbyist whose financial ties to the nuclear industry go politely unmentioned. In this case, it's Stephen Tyndale, described by the Post as the former head of Green British office, and not described as former head of communications and public affairs for N Power Renewables, a subsidiary of the energy company RWE, whose website declares that building new nuclear power stations is a key part of our commitment to meet the UK's energy needs. So, aside from people who have been paid by the nuclear power industry, who are the green groups that the subhead promises see nuclear power as part of the answer? The article cites two groups who support the climate change bill currently before Congress, which includes nuclear subsidies, the Sierra Club and the Environmental Defense Fund. But both groups are still opposed to nuclear power. The Sierra Club's official position is still the one it passed in 1974, declaring opposition to the licensing, construction, and operation of new nuclear reactors utilizing the fission process until safety, waste, and proliferation issues are addressed. On climate change in particular, they've stated that virtually every other form of power is cheaper and less risky. The EDF similarly declares officially that they do not support the expansion of nuclear generating capacity unless serious questions are resolved. So it doesn't sound like either group actually views nuclear power as part of the answer. We can comfortably say that reporting like the Post's that glosses over critical information in its search for the corporate friendliest solution to any environmental issue is part of the problem. I sit out
2: running, but I take
1: my time. A friend
11: of the devil is a friend of mine. If I get home before daylight, just might get some sleep tonight. I ran into the devil, he loaned me 20. Night in Utah, in a cave up in the hills. Sit down running, but I take
4: my time. A friend of the devil is a friend of mine. If I get home before daylight, just might get some sleep
13: tonight. If a diamond is a girl's best friend, then coal is its hotter younger sister. In the early days of coal mining, it was dirty, dangerous work, as seen in this sad footage. (laughs) We lost a lot of good men to inflatable dragons. (laughs) Thankfully, modern science has found a much safer way to get our coal. Blowing the tops off mountains! (laughs) Awesome! It's great. You start with some boring, tree-covered mountain, and you turn it into an exciting, lifeless moon base. (laughs) Plus, it is the most efficient way to get to the coal inside. That's why, when I go to the dentist, I have him remove my teeth through the top of my head. (laughs) Now, unfortunately, not everyone out there gets it, like the EPA. In September, they put 79 mountain removal projects on hold. Who made the EPA the protector of the environment? (laughs) Well, good news, nation. This month, the EPA reversed their position and awarded a permit for a 600-acre mine in West Virginia to the Patriot Coal Corporation. You know it's patriotic coal because they're using their bombs bursting in air to turn those Purple Mountain Majesties into amber waves of gray. (laughs) Of course, this decision doesn't please everybody out there like the scientists who just published the most comprehensive study ever on mountaintop mining in the journal Science. They claim that waste material gets dumped into the surrounding valleys and streams, obliterating the ecosystem, and that the science is so overwhelming that the only conclusion that one can reach is that mountaintop mining needs to be stopped. Excuse me, but I say mountaintop mining is a proud American tradition. Did you know that on Mount Rushmore, Lincoln used to have a stovepipe hat? But they lopped it off to get to his sweet brain coal. (laughs) True story. It's a true story. Besides, how else is America supposed to get our coal? We currently get 10% of it from mountaintop removal. And experts say enforcing the rules to minimize dumping all that waste into the streams could add one or two dollars per ton to the cost of coal. One or two dollars? Folks, my show burns three tons of coal per night. That's why I offer shoveling internships. Faster, Jay! You want that college credit or not? Besides... Most of the stream poisoning happens in Appalachia. And the only people it affects are the one remaining group that everybody still feels comfortable making fun of. Hillbillies. <laughs> <laughs> Hillbillies are poor. Though, though, if we keep taking away the mountains, we're gonna have to start calling them just billies. If you ask me, the woman who led this study, Dr. Margaret Palmer of the University of Maryland, is making a mountain out of a molehill that I'm about to blow the top off of. Please welcome. Dr. Margaret Palmer. Dr. Palmer, thank you so much for joining me. (laughs) Doctor... Come on. You're all anti-mountaintop removal, but let's face facts. These mountains will grow back?
10: actually these mountains are 300 million years old and even if the mountains grow back they'll grow back in another 300 million years guess what, while those mountains are growing back Mm -hmm. we've got all sorts of toxic chemicals that are going into the streams like what, like like, what, like toxic chemicals in what streams what's going in there? all sorts of things like selenium, Uh like manganese these things, you know how much you pay
13: for mineral supplements like (laughs) manganese and
10: selenium (laughs) we're giving them to these people for free (laughs) So you say the streams are poisoned. Let me tell you, you don't want to be drinking water from these streams. Fish sometimes have two eyes on one side of the head, it's have deformed flounder spines. It's called a flounder. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen too many flounders in the streams of West Virginia. A and
13: mountain flounder. <laughs> Well, then why don't we just take big Brita filters and put them at the mouth of that stream?
10: Well, it is, Have you even thought about it that? It is interesting to ask why the water's not cleaned up, but one thing is that, you know, you can do this in a way that doesn't blow up mountains. They're more efficient. Well, not necessarily efficient in terms of making money.
13: So you don't think we should be taking off the top of mountains? You think there's a better way?
10: I think there's a better way. You want
13: to take off the bottom of mountains? And in... <laughs> you realize that's dangerous. That's dangerous. <laughs>
10: And in fact, if you do it some of the more traditional ways, more miners will be employed. who are incredibly important to the United States. Coal is important to the United States right now until we... Absolutely.
13: It is our alternative energy. (laughs) Clean coal. Right?
10: Until we get... We've got a lot of
13: coal. We're the Saudi Arabia of
10: coal. Until we get to a more sustainable form of energy, we do need coal in this country and the miners play an important role. What we don't need is people that are having significant health problems in these areas around surface mining. We're talking higher rates of kidney disease, cardiovascular disease, lung cancer. In fact, if you look at the mortality rate in regions of the Appalachians, mortality goes up as a function of the amount of mining that goes on in the county. So you say the people who are in that area, miners. You... It's children and women.
13: Okay. Oh, you're going to play the children and women <laughs> card. Fine. <laughs> okay, but, but but you say the people who live in these areas are are getting these diseases. Absolutely. Okay. There's okay. No but question. if you keep removing the mountains, eventually these areas won't be there either, (laughs) and then no one will be living there. The problem kind of solves itself. (laughs) And let me ask you this, all right? (laughs) All right. If if, if we didn't blow up these mountains, don't you think these mountains would just as easily blow us up? Have you heard of Vesuvius or Pinatubo or Mount St. Helens? Payback is a bitch, baby. This is our turn.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. So as you have likely noticed by now, I don't do a whole lot of talking about politics at the end of the show. I just kind of let the clips do my talking for me. You know, it's not like I don't generally have things to say about politics, but when it comes to the show, I just don't have a whole lot to add, usually. Uh, Today's a little different because it's a global warming episode, or climate change, if you prefer, and I did work in the climate change activism game ...for the past couple of years, and I actually managed to soak up a little bit of knowledge about it. And since today, I used, um, well, it was a total of three clips, but it was clips from two separate shows of Ring of Fire. Uh, One interviewing uh, Representative Ed Markey, and the other interviewing Senator Maria Cantwell... ...about two completely different bills taking two different approaches to capping carbon in the United States... I thought I would take a minute and uh, talk about both of them and which one actually uh, looks like it makes sense and which one is very well-meaning but could be a, a disaster in the waiting. So, first of all, the basic idea behind both of them is to raise the price on dirty energy, anything that emits carbon. And, you know, that that's just basic economics. You make something cost more so people use it less. So first of all, for cap-and-trade, the idea is you put an artificial cap on how much emissions uh, of carbon dioxide can be released, and then you issue permits to release that capped amount of carbon to the companies that do that. So the companies that emit a lot of carbon uh, theoretically have to pay for all of the permits to do that, and if they need to emit more carbon than permits they have, then they have to buy more, so it costs them more money. And then, you know, hopefully other companies will emit less and they'll have leftover permits. And that's how the trading system works. It, it becomes basically a new market of, of trading just for carbon. It would, be, it would work a lot like, you know, Wall Street stock market, that sort of thing. Companies trading amongst each other, but instead of trading stocks, they'd be trading carbon permits. This would result in the cost of carbon going up. All of those costs would be passed on to the customers and, you know, higher prices for gas, higher prices for coal-fired electricity and so forth. So the, the people of the country end up kind of footing the bill for that and they have to pay a little bit more. But we all get the benefit of a lower carbon economy in the future. It's better for everyone's health and so forth. So now quickly, the alternative is the idea of cap and dividend. So you start out the same, you wanna raise the price, you put a cap on the emissions, but instead of companies being able to trade the permits amongst each other, they just have to pay in to the government, the federal government, and the government turns around and pays out dividends to every person in America with a social security number. That's the idea of how it would work. So the results end up being the same, carbon prices go up, Everyone's gas prices go up, everyone's energy costs go up, but at the same time, you're receiving dividend checks to offset those rate increases. So in you know, twofold, you know, first of all, you get rid of the Wall Street style trading, and I think we can all agree that we're not really going to be all that enthusiastic about opening up a new market for Wall Street to deal with right now. You know, they're, they're not the guys at the top of anyone's trust list. And then secondly, it has a built-in safety feature for everyone in the country to protect them from these rising energy costs at a time of, you know, economic instability. So those are the two basic ideas right now. And the reason why the cap-and-trade bill is, is so much farther along in Congress, you know, it's actually a, a cap-and-trade bill has been passed through the House of Representatives in Congress, and now it's stalled in the Senate, of course, because health care took over everyone's lives but the reason that the cap and trade bill is so far ahead and no one's ever heard of cap and dividend is kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy it's just that's what everyone had heard of before you know we had used that system before um you know it's been implemented in 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 different ways and europe tried to use it recently and and so people had heard of it so they're like well i guess this is how you do carbon capping and no one really had any other ideas so the idea of a cap and dividend program is really just kind of bubbling up now. And it's, it's been thought of by people in the know as kind of an, a, an attractive plan B. Those who knew that the the cap and trade system was going to be so big and so onerous and so complicated and then look like a giant tax increase, basically. I mean, you know the Republicans are going to call it that. I mean, they well, they already are. But the idea that we want to raise the cost of energy on middle Americans without offsetting that cost in any way, you know, it's it's basically a tax increase. So, of course, it's going to be attacked that way. And then on top of that, the, the Wall Street trading craziness, like it, it's it's uh, it's an idea that has like a noble purpose and everyone who is behind it is well-meaning. It just has these inherent flaws that are dragging it down and dragging it down. And it's finally, you know, eventually it's just going to die a horrible death. At least that's what many are predicting. So waiting in the wings is this other idea of a cap and dividend system. It's 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 so simple. It's so easy to understand. It's fair for everyone. And, you know, kind of in, in the same way that Social Security is is a program in this country that has lasted for decades and decades, is because everyone in America is treated fairly, and they're receiving checks. And you try to take someone's payments away, they're going to get pretty mad about it. So, if we put this kind of system in place, then the chances of it being repealed you know, by the next president or the next Congress or whatever is very, very slim because everyone's going to be getting that check and they're going to like it. So they'll have no choice but to leave it in place. And a plan like this has to be in place for, you know, 50 years into the future, because that's how long it takes to solve climate change. So that's it. That's my, my short little uh, lesson on those two bills. I know my old boss will be proud of me for, uh, for laying out that case for you. And uh, and just remember, it's, uh, you know, Maria Cantwell is the one who's like really spearheading this uh, this new cap and dividend idea. So if you're the type of person who likes to, you know, get involved in in the politics and and get down into the weeds and some of this stuff, uh, she's the person to contact uh, or, you know, go to her website and kind of check in to see uh, to see what's going on with this bill. So that'll do it for that. Of course, just before I go, I'm going to thank a couple of members who make the show possible. Dan A. signed up uh, for a full year membership on January 19th. Thanks, Dan. And, uh, and Christopher G. signed up on February 21st, going uh, above and beyond the, the standard membership rate and, and signed up you know, just for a regular monthly membership. So, uh, so huge thanks to both of them and all the members who, who keep the show going. Of course, in return, members uh, have a warm, fuzzy feeling about uh, helping to support the show and they get bonus content. Uh, it's it's all kinds of great stuff. So details on that are at the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. So, of course, check out that website for all the details on all the different ways, you know, financial and otherwise, that you can support the show. This whole thing exists entirely because the listeners, you know, tune in and, and uh, support it in, in all kinds of different ways. In the meantime, you can stay tuned into the show between episodes by going to Facebook or Twitter. We're at both of those places, whichever you prefer. And then more details on the show, including links to all the sources and music used in this episode and all the episodes is always in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from as far outside the conventional wisdom of the D.C. Beltway as I can get. My name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast delivered to you 10 times a month now. Thanks entirely to the members and donors from bestoftheleft.com.
2: I light burns now black and white Cause you took apart a picture that wasn't right Bitch burning on a shining sheet The only maker that you want to meet A dying man in a living room Who no shadow bases the throne Who'll take you out
6: Hi, my name is Mike. Could I have your ears for a real short rant? This message is totally unsolicited. In fact, the only way you could be hearing my message right now is because Jay heard this very same recording and gave me a little space. So, thanks, Jay. Hey, talk about penny-pinching in this economy. I've whittled down a normal middle-class existence to my current bare-bones income, and I do it on early Social Security retirement. That's 25% less than regular Social Security. $5 is a lot of money to me, but I consider it important enough to give those dollars to Jay every month to further his great program, the twice-weekly Best of the Left podcast. So if you could possibly squeeze a subscription into your budget, do it hey if i can come up with a fiber every month i think most people can and if you can't keep listening do those free things that jay asks you to do and then subscribe when you can thanks